spirit. We want to be the kind of people that love you, God, that yearn after you, and we want to have hearts that break over the things that break over your heart. We don't want to be the thing that actually causes you grief. So we pray that uh, you would open the mouth of uh, your servant. Uh, you would help me proclaim the word in a way that is true and accurate and appropriate in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that the same Spirit will open the hearts of everyone who hears the word of God here, who are assembled to receive what your word has to say, that we would not fight your conviction in our heart, but yield to what your Holy Spirit has said to us. In everything the church said, amen. All right. So today uh, we are continuing our series on Ephesians, and uh, I think it would be good just to let you know exactly uh, what we're, uh, a little bit of a review for what we're talking about. Uh, The passage that we're reading with comes within a context, and if you remember last week, we talked to you about the idea that we have been called out of darkness into light, and so a new lifestyle has been given to us as Christians, that we are no longer to live like the Ephesians do in their lies, in their lack of feeling towards the things of God or the sensuality, and we were to put off the old self, the old way of living and put on the new self, the new person of Jesus Christ. And so what we're giving here in the text is we're given actually, uh, technically there's five, I'm going to talk about four of them today. We're gonna give, we are given four instructions about how to live. And at the center of it, there is this verse in verse 30 that says that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? And so what this text is trying to say to us is that there is a way to act and a way to live that blesses the Lord, that makes the Lord happy, that makes him smile upon us, and then there is a way that we actually cause grief to the Lord. And so I just want to quickly, uh, uh, just by process of review, I know we all know this, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page. I want to review three quick things about the Holy Spirit, just so we're on the same page. And the first one is is that the Holy Spirit is a real person. We learn from this passage that the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not some sort of New Age mist. He's not the force off of Star Wars. He is a real person because he has the ability to grieve, right? It's not an, he's not a power or an energy source, and it's inappropriate to refer to the Holy Spirit as that. He's a person, okay? And I think it's really, really important for us to keep reminding ourselves of that fact, because I know that theologically or intellectually, I, I believe that in my head, but on the day-to-day basis, I kind of would act and uh, uh, treat him more like a force or an energy source than I would a person. And we have to understand that he is a real person and that he is the third person of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit feels pain and sorrow. So that's the one of the things that we are to learn about the Holy Spirit. The second thing is that we are to learn that the Holy Spirit is deeply involved in the details of our lives. Okay? When Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, 
What he means to say is that he assumes that every believer is more than aware when we are causing the Holy Spirit grief. There's this, when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, it says that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in your soul, in your heart, that you are given a new nature, that you are regenerated. And when you and I have the Holy Spirit, we are to live by him. And when you and I do an action or something that is contrary to the way that God wants us to live, there's a little bit of, I don't know if you feel this, there's a little bit of twinge in your heart, right? You feel it, like you're just like, ah, no, that wasn't right, something happened, Right? Paul wants us to know that the Holy Spirit is deeply involved in our lives. And thirdly, as Christians, we, are never, we never want or desire to disappoint the Holy Spirit's expectations for our life. So what we're learning here is there's a series of commands, but at the very heart of the passage, we see that it all boils down to uh, the fact that God, the, uh, Paul is asking us not to live in a way that causes the Holy Spirit grief. So, you know, when we get to a passage that actually has uh, a negative connotation like this, like, hey guys, I don't want you to live in a way that grieves the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I like to do is what I like to do is I like to ask the opposite question, which is what kinds of things bless the Holy Spirit, right? And so you see a list of uh, five of them in the, the text that we read, and I just want to uh, turn them around and say the same thing in a positive light. And I think, and I would say this, is the th- things that bless God's heart in this passage, and it's not exhaustive to this list, but it includes this list, or the things that make God smile or bless him or God is pleased with is when we're honest. That when we re- resolve our relational issues quickly, than when we work hard and we speak to build others up. Okay? Does everyone track with me? Like everyone can see where I'm getting that from, right? So conversely, what I want, or sorry, what I want to say is that, uh, I actually want to go back, back to this. I kind of gave it away. <laughs> uh, uh, those things have one thing in common. What is that one thing in common? Uh, you, if you saw the slide, you already saw it, <laughs> Okay. What do honesty, relational conflicts, working hard, and speaking to build others up all involve that have in common? For all people who have grown up in church here, you should know this. They involve, it starts with a P, people. Okay. I think that we bless God when we are skilled at loving people. Okay. That God is blessed by his Holy Spirit is pleased when we do this. I want you to know something about what the Holy Spirit is grieved on, though. The Holy Spirit is grieved on when we live and act in a way where we tear down our relationships, where we are unloving and we don't, uh, we don't see that. All four commands, lying, uh, <clears throat> working hard, or not stealing, or being able to not have any corrupting talk or not getting angry and do not sin, all involve people. You cannot do it without people in your lives, okay? And so what blesses the Holy Spirit is what I'm going to say is when we build strong relationships with each other. And I'm going to, I'm going to go on a limb here, and you can disagree with me or not agree with me on this, but I'm going to say that the most mature Christian among us is actually a relational Christian. 
Someone who is skilled at loving people, who is good at loving people. And if you want me to, like, let me, let me back that up a little bit by scripture. Every command from here on in, from Ephesians 4.25, all the way down to marriage, to purity, to the way that you live, to spiritual warfare, all involves people. Okay? Every single command. Okay? And what I want to say is I think there's wisdom in saying that the mature believers among us are skilled in the area of loving people and relationship. Now, what, what, what do I mean by that? Do I mean that you're an extrovert and that you're inter, if you're an introvert that somehow like you're not a mature Christian? No, that's not what I mean. And do I mean that you have to have, everyone has to like you and you can never have any broken relationships or you can never be in conflict? That's not what I mean either. I try my best to be relational, and people still don't like me, right? In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've had death threats simply because I asked a volunteer to quit being in youth ministry. If I really wanted people, and I, 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 just the other day, actually, I was... I was, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a Wednesday uh, afternoon's Three Hills Soup Kitchen thing happening in the community center. And I decided that I would go there and I met someone and he needed my help. So I told him, hey, this is what the Bible says. And he got so angry at me that he walked all the way from the community center, all the way up to Daryl and Vicky's house, screaming and yelling at me and calling down curses. People don't like me, <laughs> right? People are not going to like you, okay? And what I am saying by the fact that you are skilled in relationship is not that everyone likes you or not that you're an extrovert, but you are really good at being relationally mature in whatever circumstance that you're in, okay? I want you to look at James chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. It says this, uh, and it talks about wisdom, uh, what kind of wisdom is good, what kind of wisdom is bad, and listen to what it says here. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions of your heart, do not boast and be, to be, uh, and be false to the truth, okay? So jealousy, and you can't, have, you can't be jealous without people in your life, and you can't have selfish ambition without other people in your life. Listen to what it says. This is not wisdom that comes from above. It is unearthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil practice. Uh, but, listen to what it says in 17. But wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. You, every single one of those things, except for the purity part there, when it says, first of all, pure, involves a relational skill. Being peaceable, being gentle, being open to reason. So I'm not saying that you can never be, people can never be mad at you or you can never have broken relationships, but I need you to understand something very clearly, and that is that God loves people. I hear an amen to that one. Amen. No, you don't. I don't hear an amen to that one. That's interesting. Okay, God is in the business of people. 
okay? Which means if that we are going to be in the business of God and we are going to be in the things of God, that we must also, too, be in the business of people. And when what blesses God's heart is when you and I love people well. And what grieves the Holy Spirit is when we live in a way that we are unloving, unkind, and, un, uh, and we live in a way that is, we tear our relationships down and we don't love each other in a biblical way. You need to hear this, friends. Right? And I, I'm spending a little bit of time on this because you need to hear this very clearly, is that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit in a vacuum. Okay? Meaning this, is there's no such thing as a private sin because it has a bearing on us all. Okay? So listen, I, I'm not expecting everyone to share all their dirty secrets in church, but you need to understand something, okay? The things, that are, the things that are in your closet, the things that are private between you and God, the, thing, the, the sins that you only let God know and not everyone else, those, those, like, there's no such thing as a sin between you and him that way. We might not know what the sin is. We might not know that you're actually living in sin, but we can feel the consequences of it in how you interact with us. Okay? A lot of times what I've noticed is is when a guy has sinned in a way against his spouse or against his family in some way, well, a lot of times what they do is they'll come up to me and say, uh, I don't want to tell my wife that I took the money or I did this or I coveted this or I spent this or I did this because I don't want to hurt her. Okay? But the truth of the matter is, is you've already hurt them. Right? They just can't name why they feel hurt. But they feel it. Like, when there's things that I've done to Liz, I might not tell her right away, but she can sense it because I have a gruff attitude, right? Our sins, the things that we do in our lives, affect our relationships, even the ones that you think they're private. There are very few sins in the Bible. I count six or seven in total that are strictly between you and God. Everything else involves people, right? So when I say what blesses the heart of God, I want you to understand what blesses the heart of God is when we love well, and what grieves the Holy Spirit is when we live in a way that doesn't, right? So with that, I want to ask the question, have you lived a life, how have you lived this week? Have you lived in a way that has blessed the Holy Spirit or have you lived in a way that has grieved the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to give you five or sorry, four uh, just kind of check marks to this. And what I want you to do is I just want you to listen to what the text says, listen to what the, Holy, uh, the Word of God says in this and just ask yourself two questions, okay? Number one, what way did I live this week that blessed the Holy Spirit? Because I think it's important to know when we're doing something right and when we're, when we're on track, and I think we should encourage each other that way. And then what way am I more capable or prone to grieving the Holy Spirit? So the first one I want to say is I want to look at the area of honesty. I don't know if you want to put that up, up, there, up there for us. Uh, um, is that it says this in verse 420, uh, 425, Therefore, having put away falsehood, uh, 
Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So let me, let me just explain this really quick for you, is that our neighbor is actually, uh, the, we, we have to assume that our neighbor is our brother and sister in Christ, so it's the church, and we are members of one another. And so Paul is speaking about the relationship that believers have within the church, that the church has to be a place where truth speaking is central. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've loved this quote, uh, um, from John MacArthur, and, and, and you, uh, let me read it to you, and you can, de- you can decide whether you disagree with it or agree with it or not, but he says this, Our society today is so disp- dependent on lying that if suddenly everyone turned to telling our truth, our way of life would collapse and we would signify World War III. If our leaders began speaking only the truth, World War III would certainly ensue. Now, you can decide whether or not you would agree with that, but listen, what the point is this, is that we have to be people who are known uh, that when our words are spoken, when we have interactions with one another, when we sit down for coffee or when we greet each other in the foyer or the church building or whatever ha- where we have to be in or whether we're having a Bible study, regardless of how we meet and interact with, for that matter, we have to be people who are known as speaking the truth. And, and you know, it's very easy for lies to find the way in the church. I you know, recently I heard a discussion that a great number of resumes that people hand in in their jobs contain lies, right? They're not really the, their star uh, coach of the basketball team in high school. They didn't actually really graduate from school, college. And lying has become so convenient that it, it's, it's become part of our culture and who we are. It's frightening to think of how convenient lying has become. But the Christian community has a different order. We are to put away falsehood. So I mean that, and so when we read this passage, we have to understand that when, every time we utter lies to the will each other, that we, and we sense of our hope, we need to understand that we sense within ourselves that the Holy Spirit is deeply grieved on that matter. And he says this, I am urging you to speak truth, says the Spirit, in our lives. So let me just go over really quickly what happens when we actually live a a life of dishonesty. Lies lead to mistrust. Lies lead to a lack of love between people. And lies lies lead to an act of intimacy in which people can relate to one another on a deeper level. When people are dishonest with each other, we cannot bring the truth of who we really are and what we really struggle with to light. Truth-telling, on the other hand, builds love, builds trust, and builds an intimacy with genuine fellowship with other believers that we can be had. And that is a wonderful thing, isn't it not? To be in a community where someone is going to be honest with you. I think a great many of our anxieties and our fears and it would go away if we just realized we could trust what people say. Right? So my question to you is, have you lied this week? Let me give you a test to see how well you've you done uh, on this. So you can, because we're in church, you know, I, I can understand if you don't want to do this, but maybe do this at home, and I want you to see how well you're doing at home. So uh, 
if you want to take a minute or two, what I would ask you to do is write down who have you been less than honest with about in the last 12 months. I want you to think about it, okay? So go home, write, you know, get a piece of paper out, write that question out. Who have I not been honest with in the last 12 months? And then I want you to write down their names, okay? And so if you don't want to do it here, that's fine because, you know, I get the whole privacy thing. But here's what I want you to catch. If in that exercise you know you lied and you have trouble writing it down, I think you have a problem with honesty because you don't want to face the truth. So if you want to know how great, how, how you're doing on this, this is a little exercise. And what I want you to pay attention to is the reaction that you have within your heart when you actually write that name down on a piece of paper. Is it easy for you or not? And if it's not easy and you can't write it, then maybe there's a little bit of an issue there that actually grieves the Spirit and the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I actually want to work on this. Okay. Secondly, uh, so just, just on that question and to make it more practical, maybe you think about this. Who am I hurting by the concessions I make with my honesty? I think that's a very important question to ask. Secondly, what blesses the Holy Spirit is when we keep short accounts in our relationships and we forgive quickly. Listen to this. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on the anger. So let me explain this really quick because there's two ways that you could look at this text. First of all, you could, it can be understood in one of two ways. One, it simply can be the assumption that everyone gets angry at some point in time or it could be seen as a command. Okay, Be angry and do not sin. And what I mean is that there are some things that we should be angry about. I mean, we should be angry about injustice. We should be angry about the abuse of others. We should be angry about deceit and all those kinds of things and things that cause disruption in fellowship. But Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So what I think he's trying to say is that when we are angry, we are not to sin. Now, let's remember for just, and take Jesus as the example in this. He goes into the temple where there's money changers, if you know the story. He recognizes that they are violating God's intention for the temple. And what does he do? He gets what? Angry. Right? The money changers were actually in the court of the Gentiles, and they basically cut off every single God-fearing person from seeking after God in the Gentile community and shut them down and said, we just don't care about your eternity. So Jesus is profoundly angry over the money changers and temples, and he says, my house is a house of prayer for all nations you've taken it away. So there's anger and injustice in a voice in Jesus. And when you, and even in the story of Lazarus, there's this, you know, Jesus goes and he sees his friend's Lazarus tomb. And the text says is that he was greatly troubled, which is a whitewashed of saint way of saying that he snarled. Okay. The text actually comes out and says that he was angry. What was he angry at? He was angry at death. He snarled at it. That's sort of the idea behind it. It's not that he's greatly troubled. I'm greatly troubled when I forget my sermon notes, okay? He was angry. And so what I want to say there is that 
there is an anger that is justified and there, there's an anger that you're not. But I want to say something very clearly about this, and that is this, is that often our anger is not justified. And how do I know that? Because most of us are more upset over the anger when someone has done something to hurt us than with the fact that there's someone in Calgary right now in some back alley who's going to die because they don't have any clothing. We get more upset that our spouses aren't meeting our needs or the church isn't doing something that we want it to, and we get more upset like that, and we feel like we're justified in that anger, okay? So, and I want to say that in that moment, what you're doing is you're, you, you, you say this, is a, show, well, let, me read, let, me, let me read it like this. Show me an angry person, and I'll show you a person that says that they have every right to be angry. Every single time someone says that they're angry, they always say that they have a right to. We get more upset about the injustice done to us than the injustice done to other people. Okay? And in that, we, have, we think we have a right to sin. So let me address uh, this uh, head on for a minute. And let me address those of you who have a short fuse. And by that, I mean people that feel like, I can't help it, I just was born with a short fuse, okay? And my answer to you to that is like, I've, I've said this illustration before, what if I was genetically wired to have a spitting problem? And I spit over everyone in the first three rows, Okay? How many of you would take that? You wouldn't take that. And I said to you, hey, I was just born that way. You tell me, get a freaking like splash guard or something. Okay? If that is the way you would treat something like that, then why do you think that you can get away with a temper problem because you were born that way? Let me tell you something about anger. Perpetual anger is a chosen behavior that you use to get what she or what he wants. It may feel automatic, it may feel like you can't control it, but it's learned that way, you choose it, okay? And it's usually, what I want to say this is, it's usually a cover-up emotion for fear or rejection, okay? When you feel angry, there's something else going on. You feel an injustice of sorts. And so what I would want to tell you is that in a mo in, in, when you are angry and you do not want to sin, I would take one minute just to get a napkin or a piece of paper. And I know it sounds silly, but this actually works. Just take some time and pause and process this. Fill out the blank. Go, I'm angry that. I'm afraid that. Or I feel rejected because, and then you can get to process what's really happening in your anger, okay? But anger cannot lead you to sin, which means this, is that you must learn to forgive quickly. You are not to harbor bitterness or to put bitterness aside. And someone might say, well, yeah, but what if that person's still harming me is unrepentant? And what if they're abusive at the same time? Now, I want to say this. We want to remove ourselves from the abuse of others, but we need to forgive them quickly and come to the place where we bless them in prayer and learn how to build the trust again. 
That is, is that you pray for your enemy and then you bless him. And when we don't live like that, what winds up happening is we give the devil an opportunity to influence the decisions in our lives. He uses the bitterness and he uses the broken relationship to wedge the church. I can't tell you how many times the church has divided over silly, bitter issues that got out of proportion. Keep your relational issues on a short account. Do not let the sun go down when you are angry. Now, what I mean to say by that is you forgive and patch up the relationship in a short amount of time. Okay? And when you don't do that, you grieve the Holy Spirit. But when you forgive quickly, it pleases him. Thirdly, it says this, let the thief no longer steal, uh, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And read this yellow part with me, church. It's really important that you get this. So... Okay, so... For this, uh, to help you understand this verse, I'm going to show you a one-second clip and that I found, and, it, and, and you're going to get it real quick. Uh, but I want, I want to show it to you. You're going to get it real quick. Spending allowance per month is $1,000. I feel like a peasant. If you ask me, I think my mom should be giving me at least $2,500 a month just to cover my basic expenses. When my mom... You wrote in to me. Tell me what you wanted me to get straight with your mom. I want my mom to understand that I can't live off of $1,000 a month, and I grew up on a certain lifestyle. She can't just take that away from me immediately. If someone took her lifestyle away from her, she wouldn't like that. And I grew up on it. It's all I ever know. I can't deal with this. And so, I came to you for help. Okay. I think the best thing would be to start with a job. No. Yeah, absolutely, no. she needs a job. You, you need a job. No, I don't want a job. Well, I know. It's so much work. <laughs> I don't know if Dr. Phil pays actors to do it or not, but I hope you get the idea that I'm trying to convey here. When we don't work, it breeds entitlement and narcissism. Can you understand and see that? Right? And while I do not think working hard is an issue for this church community, I do believe that as we want to be more evangelistic uh, into the community and so on and so forth, this will be an issue that we will face and become more of a problem as time goes on. I don't know if you know this or not, but during the pandemic, uh, when everyone went back to work, they couldn't find enough workers. And so the solution has actually been lately is to get the robots to do our job. So there's some photos of this that is really kind of interesting. There's guys that do the construction work, guys that are robots that do warehouse work. And if you don't really believe that that's a real thing, this is the first automated McDonald's full-fledged restaurant without any employees. It's in Texas. Okay. And so what's happening right now is 
is there's kind of like this discussion going on about how people are to work if there is no work, right? Because what has happened is when the pandemic happened and there was a worker shortage, and so what happens is, is these companies turn to robots, they'll spend like $60,000, $70,000 on a robot and doesn't need to be paid EI, doesn't need to have benefits, doesn't need time off, and they'll pay for that and, and, and do that. And it's, it's a weird era that we live in. And if you think that, you know, that doesn't touch us in Alberta, I want to invite you to come with me to Boston Pizza after church today and I will take you to Airdrie where you will be served by a cat robot waitress. Right? And if you've been to that restaurant, you know what I'm talking about. And so what I want to say is that, is that there is a discussion going right now about how to do that. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this. There's a, uh, there's a thing called ChatGPT, and it's kind of like this AI talk box thing that you can do it. You can get to do all sorts of things. Uh, you can get it to write your essays. You could read do this. And last night... I logged on and decided that I would get it to write a sermon. So, yeah, <laughs> this is that sermon. No, maybe maybe I'll read it for you. But I was gonna I was gonna videotape myself doing it. But I I said, hey, Chat BT, I want you to create a thirty minute sermon for me on Ephesians chapter four verses twenty five to twenty nine, and it was good. <laughs> yeah. It was really good. And the thing about it is, it's not someone else's work. It's not, pill, it's not pulling Billy Graham's sermon off the internet and saying this is it. It's creating its own. So there's a lot of question about how robotics field in the way of work. And one of the ways that people are thinking about doing it is to create a culture in which we subsidize people and people don't have to work. And I'm going to tell you right now that I think that's dangerous because it creates narcissism, and entitlement. Okay. As, you, as you, I've stated before, I've had the privilege of working in many kinds of churches, and one of those kinds of churches was an inner city church where most of the congregation was on some sort of social program, which I don't have a problem with initially, but it does create a little bit of entitlement. I deserve this. My life sucks. The world is so bad. I need to do this. And what I'm going to say to you is that work is God's answer to narcissism and entitlement because the idea in the text is that you don't work for the sake of work. You're not working for a self-made man. You're not working to be independent. What are you working for? It's right there in the highlighted yellow. What does it say? Right. You are to work. The whole purpose of work, according to God, is that you are able to share, that you are able to give, and you are able to bless other people. That's what blesses God's heart. That's what gives him his smile. That's what does it. But what winds up happening is the opposite of that is true. When we steal and we take and we become entitled, that actually grieves the Spirit of God. Okay? And so... Uh, uh, I want to speak to this in, in two different ways. I want to speak to those of us who are retired and those of us who are unemployed in this. And how do I live this out? Because I want you to notice something. The, the, the command is to work, not to find a paid job. You understand that? 
There is a difference. Now that it can include a paid job, but it's not limited to a paid job. So here's what I would say. Here's how I would live this out. If you are in a place in your life where you are of working capability and you're in that age that you can work and you cannot work, please surf. And here's what I would do. If you're unemployed right now and you're out of a job, here's what I do when, I, when I'm unemployed. So if you ever fire me, this is what, you're gonna, <laughs> this is what I'm going to spend my time doing. I'm going to spend my time, I'm going to divide my day up into threes. I'm going to spend a third of it with the Lord. I'm going to spend a third of it looking for a job. And I'm going to spend a third of it working. Okay? So because I don't have a job in that season, I actually get to spend more time with the Lord, more time in prayer, so I think you should take advantage of that. And because I need a job, I go and actually look for a job. But the third thing I do is I actually either volunteer the church more, or I actually go up Main Street and I just say, hey, I don't have a job right now, I'm looking for something to do. Can I just clean your toilets for free? What employer is going to say no to that? You see, the command is that you keep working, you keep serving, right? And often what happens is we're unemployed. We might take, you know, maybe three or four hours to look for a job, and then we sit in our PJs all day. That's not the command. And if you're retired, let me say this, and I want to be careful with this too, because I don't want to to guilt you or anything else in this, but... If you are retired and from paid work, you still have to work. Okay. Now I'm I realize that when you're retired and you're in your sixties, your seventies, and your eighties, your health becomes an issue and you're no longer physically able to do that which you used to do. I get that, and I don't ever want to make you feel condemned for not doing that. But listen. If you are in a place in your life where you're retired and you have the ability to work at some level, even if, you, even if you're a person that used to work you know, 15 hours a day and all you can do is one hour a day, do something and serve for one hour a day. Because here's what I've noticed, that entitlement and narcissism can creep back in without you even noticing it. And God's answer to that is that you serve in some way. So listen, if you're 65 and older, I still think you should be active in church as much as your physical condition and the circumstance that you're in enables you to. And I really, 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 really wish seniors would understand this. When I was a youth pastor, I had uh, a grandpa and grandpa uh, in my youth ministry. They were 80 years old. And they couldn't do much. Their health was bad. They had the walker. They had the knee. And they would come to youth group and they would sit there and they would just hang out with the kids. And what was so cool about that is you have to understand this, okay? Is I would have a youth group where pregnant teenagers would come in, where people would come off the streets of the partying, and the people that they would divulge the most information to weren't necessarily the cool hip youth leaders it was the grandpa and grandma and it was so cool to see that there is this broken person this 18 year 19 year old and this grandpa and grandma who are in the 80s who this kid was just sponging all this information to and the love of christ has come man we need that and I, I don't want to speak for Colton or Paige or Garth on this matter, 
but I think we need a grandpa and grandma in youth group. Okay? When you're a senior, you are the ability to bless in a way that no other age group can. You have the experience and you have the money that 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 20-year-olds do not have. And we need that. I, you know, one of the ways that churches are really blessed these days, I don't know even know it's the trend, but when churches need other pastors that don't have the salary to pay for it, what the trend is is that people will retire from their jobs at 65 or whatever, and then they will come and work for the church full-time as a, uh, without pay. That is a blessing. We need that. Okay? But I want to I give you a warning. Like I, I know that some of you can't work. I get it. But if all you do is sit around all day, then what winds up happening is without you even realizing it, that narcissism and that entitlement that that 14 or I don't know how old she was, that girl, that young lady had, creeps in your heart without noticing it. And you notice it. Here's how you notice it is because you come to church and the church, someone comes up and says, we need help in a certain area of church. And the first attitude in your heart is, I already put my time in when my 20s let the young people do it. Okay? The young people are tired. <laughs> we need everybody to serve. So listen, the Holy Spirit, we are to work in order to bless. So if you were in a place where you're unemployed, serve. And if you were a place in your life where you're senior and, and, and you're, you can serve as much as your health allows you to, I would really encourage you, we need your wisdom. We need that. And lastly, as we close up, the Holy Spirit is blessed when we use our talk to build up and bless others. What does it say here? I'm going to go... Yeah, okay. It says this, Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as for building others up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So what does it mean by corrupting talk? Well, it's the kind of talk that belittles the other, that actually leads to an atmosphere in church where people are being regularly criticized and held in low self-esteem. So if, you're, if, if, the, if the knee-jerk reaction is to say something negative rather than encouraging in church, then, then this might be a danger zone for you. Right? It's the kind of thing where you hand someone an insult in a... And it comes in such a way that it's very difficult to defend yourself against that person. And sometimes it's a result of the fact that we're angry and we simply use profanity all over the place. That's what corrupting talk is. Wholesome talk is the kind of talk that builds others up, that creates unity and creates love and creates the kind of situation where people actually trust one another. Okay. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That is also what the Holy Spirit. I think James talks about it this way. Your tongue sets the direction of your life. This is something that I really, as, as, because I talk a lot, this is something that I have to keep in check myself quite a bit. I'm not always good at it. Like I'm sure you've seen that, right? <clears throat> but you need to understand something. Out of all the organs in your body, 
the tongue is the one that sets the direction of how you work, who you marry, what kind of relationships you have. It all comes out of what you say. And you have the ability to set your direct, the direction of your relationships to be a blessing or to corrupt them. Which will you choose? Okay. So those are the things that bless God hard. I know that's hard. I, I tried to frame it in a positive way so it didn't sound like it was coming down hard on you. But here's, here's, here's what I want to say in conclusion. So um, the Holy Spirit is urging us today to love. And that is, is that we are putting away falsehood, that we are putting away faith, that we put away bad attitudes and clamor and all these things. And he is urging us to create a community in which we love each other. And we can see that being truthful here, and I'm including myself in this, we all haven't done this. However, the Holy Spirit has put a mark of ownership on us and is making us aware that our actions and our attitudes are grievous to Christ. There, There is an allegation in our own hearts that I've been wrong, and when that happens, there's something very important that we need to do, is that we need to get our knees and say, Holy Spirit, I've grieved you today, and I want to confess my sins, and I'm asking you to fill me afresh, so that I might embrace the attitudes that, that, that love and wholeness, and a, a building others up. Well, can you do that? Not on your own you can, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, he will help you make you aware, and give you the equipment that's necessary to live the life that Christ wants you to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come together, we thank you for your word today. And again, we do not want to be a people that grieve you. We want to be a people that bless your name and bless, and bless what you have done over our lives. So as we go today, I pray that we would just have a time of self-reflection. Where have I, where have I lived in a way that has blessed the Lord And where have I lived in a way that has grieved the Spirit? In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Stand with me and we'll close our...